Well, kia ora koutou, kato everyone, and welcome to the weekly hoon uh, here live from um, Wellington, and you can see our fridge in the background, and from the glamorous uh, uh, background of uh, London, we have Peter Bale. I can see... It was more your... the glamorous, I'm the glamorous foreground, and I've got the some foreground. glamorous background, and the, <laughs> and the beautiful spring flowers in the background, yeah. Yeah, yeah, no. You um, see the roses are actually particularly good at the Oh, moment. that's lovely, yes. And um, you survived Spain and the heat of Spain, and now you've come back to the the more genteel um, British. I have been. Right? I have. I did survive Spain, but I, in a couple of weeks I'll be back, and I'll we'll we'll be we'll be hooning hooning from Spain. Again. Ah, lovely. No, oh, that's we're all jury jealous because I look out the window. It is almost dark here in Wellington. We've had three days of the most awful weather with rain. Firstly, coming from the south, there was hail. Then it's come from the north with the wind, and I would love to be anywhere else but Wellington right now. But is there poo in the streets? Mainly, we've got to. That's what we mainly got to remember. Is there poo well, in the streets? Well, no, but we have learnt this week that the bill for Wellington's water upgrades has risen by sixty percent in, in the last year or two. And also, can they blame that on Brexit like they do everything else here? No, 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 this ah. is not Brexit. This is just rising uh, costs of uh, construction and inflation generally. And in mm -hmm. fact, this week also in Christchurch, you know, they were planning to build this covered stadium. Well, the price of that is went up by 150 oh, there's million. Oh, there's a, there's a surprise. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so it's, it's, all, it's all on here in the middle of winter. Um, it does feel a bit like a winter of discontent. Uh, the vibe around the place is not fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. We've got a new, new poll out showing that um, the government is uh, well behind the opposition, which in theory could govern almost by itself at the moment. So um, not fantastic. Uh, but this week we uh, have a couple of special guests to brighten up things. Robert Patman is coming to us from uh, sunny Dunedin at uh, 5.15 or so until 5.30. And we'll talk about all the events of the week, particularly in international affairs with um, the Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern meeting with Joe Biden in a fairly historic um, meeting. And then from 5.30... Fairly historic is a very... Fairly yeah. historic is a rather interesting way to put it. Yeah. I mean, I, I thought this idea that he was asking her advice about, about gun control was, was a little bit fanciful. Yeah, it was nice, I mean, but a little bit fanciful. It is nice. I mean, obviously, that was the the story of the moment in the United States. And, of course, she does have some chops to talk about this. And there is a connection to this latest um, horrible school shooting in the United States in that the perpetrator uh, claimed yes. that uh, he was inspired by the Christchurch <laughs> shootings um, horribly. And uh, the reaction from the New Zealand government and both sides of parliament, to be fair, um, for both main parties, to significantly strengthen our gun laws and organise a massive gun buyback was something, at least, um, at least, unfortunately, completely useless in the American context because right. of the various political legislative <laughs> and um, constitutional constitutional lunacy yeah. and gerrymandering nastiness that's gone on there which means that nothing ever changes and uh you're right it did it did seem like a distraction and actually i think it was a distraction for a lot of people here in new zealand we've got this tendency whenever our leaders go overseas to do a oh my goodness everyone's looking at us look at us um we're printing above our weight um look we're on the Colbert show with Stephen Colbert, and um, suddenly everyone knows their yeah. name. Oh, well, I mean, so what's the? I mean, you've got you have a meeting with Biden, or you have a meeting with with Stephen Colbert. 
who's already and, driven around Wellington in, in, in Jacinda's car, isn't he? Auckland, yeah. They're, no, already, she, she, they're already like that. Exactly, yeah. So, um, and you could argue that from a pure PR, you know, uh, impact point of view, the Colbert report um, appearance might have been bigger than the uh, event with exactly. Joe Biden. However, yeah. and uh, however, um, all of that noise around the visit of the uh, gun control debate, what's happening or not happening with the Christchurch call, the um, Harvard commencement address um, speech sort of um, overshadowed, which was the real thing that happened in that meeting, which was the signing of a joint statement between New Zealand and, and the United States, in which New Zealand significantly <clears throat> strengthened uh, its security relationship with the United States and signed on to a very aggressive and widespread attack, really, on China's record, not just in the Pacific, but Taiwan, Hong Kong, Xinjiang. Yeah, know. no, it really, it really was quite, quite remarkably comprehensive. And I, and I, and I think you know you'll be reading about in next month's um, North and South Bernard because my, my column next week is all going to be about that. And uh, mm, great, um, I, might, I might even be quoting 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 Robert and a number of other academics about it. But it is it is interesting that it's hardened up. But we haven't got Josie on yet to talk about that, have we? Yes, from 5.30 onwards, we'll have Josie Pagani, who is a regular columnist in the Dominion Post. She's a former Labour candidate, but also is now working in uh, international aid and development here in Wellington and is pretty um, on top of what's happening globally mm. and also politically here. So that's, that's, uh, that'll be yeah. useful. Well, shall I tell you a little bit about the what's, I mean, let's, let's not blow our, blow our um uh, you know, our initial impact on the on the China story until she gets there. Then, sure. Shall I tell you what I did yesterday? Yes. So I hopped on my bicycle and rode down into Hyde Park Corner to the rather fabulous um, and very beautiful in Athfield New Zealand War Memorial, which is in oh, the centre yeah. of um, centre of Hyde Park Corner, <clears throat> next to the uh, statue of the Duke of Wellington, um, <clears throat> and. Uh, Watched the. I'm not a. I'm not a royalist by any means, but I watched the fly past of the RAF uh, for the Queen's 70th uh, platinum, platinum jubilee, wow. which was quite spectacular. And of course, being a bit of an old sook, uh, um, and because my father was in the RAF flying hurricanes during the war, um, uh, I particularly liked the Lancaster going past and leading a leading two spit fires and and two hurricanes because wow. you just cannot get better than the sound of those merlin merlin oh v12s goodness. so you had, merlin you had four on the lancaster <clears throat> and then you had four in the fighters exactly exactly no they were just fantastic and uh and i was with somebody who was rather alarmed at my ability to identify um c1 c130 hercules c c47 starlifter uh <laughs> and tornadoes and uh the, it was quite into the Eurofighters, um, which you might remember was a jet wow, yeah. that we, we, we never thought would come. Uh, and the, the, we seem to have enough of them in England at the moment for them to spell out um, a seven and a zero, which was quite impressive. Uh -huh. And there were quite a few. Um, I was surprised to see F-35s, which is, of course, the new uh -huh. American-made um, fighter, multi-role multi fighter jet that um, uh, has just arrived to equip the um, British aircraft carrier and uh -huh. so on. But yes, it was you'd want to be, absolutely. You'd, you'd want to be making these modern um, fighter jets at the moment. There's a big market for it, and I suspect the flyover was as much to impress Vladimir, Vladimir Putin as it was the Queen. 
Perhaps, perhaps, but it was it was it was quite spectacular, um, and uh, you know there were lots of, lots of people there and all of that kind of stuff. And Beverly Short is there pointing out that her father flew a Sterling in World oh, War II, wow. which, mean, which means that like my father who flew a Blenheim most of World War II, uh, he was extremely lucky to come back at all. Actually, oh, yeah, Both yeah, no, the, the the losses in those um, <laughs> bombers was something something else. Um, wow, that must have been a, a fun event. And she, she was there. The Queen was there, right? The Queen was the Queen was looking. You know, well, she called me in the morning and said, "I'd look, you know, nice to have seen you down in, down in Hyde Park, Pedro." But she, she looked rather, you know, she looked rather sprightly. I don't, I don't know whether she had a kind of frame, you know, holding her standing up underneath the, underneath that dress. And of course, Prince Charles was standing standing beside her, looking like some sort of sort of Ruritanian from the Mouse That Roared. Um, amusing. Did he have his? Um, did he have his? Did he have his um, arm in his jacket? He often does that. No, that no. Well, oh, he may have. He may have. But he had, you know, he had more gold braid than than you know than than, than the, the entire Russian army. But he, um, it, interestingly, Andrew uh, has seems to have COVID, and so will not be making his appearance on Friday with the Queen uh, uh, at St Paul's, which is a you know a timing. very handy dose of COVID. Yeah. That one. That's right. Um, but we, um, we, when, we generally try to make this a royal free. And um, Amber Heard and Johnny Depp free and US um, school shooting free uh, podcast, don't we? Yep, I think that's a good policy that we have adopted. And um, also um, very interesting to see. Do you see the Australians have appointed a special minister for the Republic? Yes, yes. Associate Minister for the Republic, which is yeah, they're a bunch and of disloyal, disloyal former convict oh, bastards, aren't they? You know? Yeah, and and what strikes strikes me whenever I see pictures of the Queen these days, and you know the seventieth the, um, um, the Jubilee is an amazing thing. You just imagine what she has seen and who mm. she's dealt with. That idea that Winston Churchill was her first Prime Minister, and now yeah. she's having to. Shoot the breeze with Boris Johnson. Yeah, every yeah. couple yeah. of weeks. And via, via John Major, Margaret Thatcher, Clement Attlee. You know, it is fabulous. I mean, it, it also shows you how good the how good the Crown is actually, as a as almost as a sort of dramatized documentary. Yeah, yeah, and I suspect it's one of the reasons why it's so popular is that you can tell the history of the world through the history of the yes, um, of that's right. actually her reign alone, and you d- you do think is when she goes <coughs> touch touch wood it's not for a while yet but when she goes it's just not going to be the same uh, institution and uh, that whole debate again I think will start up it's obviously starting up again. No, well I think that the, the moment she goes you'll start seeing the particularly the Murdoch papers in the UK starting to pull down that institution. Really, mm-hmm. as in like. Decide to just wreck it for fun, or what? Yes, no, no because it's that's another Australian thing. You know, it's all it's uh, all an anti-monarchist, you know, anti-establishment thing. But and, Rupert and still for, thinks he's part and, of the. Rupert still thinks he's not the establishment. Yet he invented his own. Basically, he's that's another right. one who seems to be lasting forever, which um, I'm not so thrilled about. <laughs> but but anyway, that's a bit mean. No, he's a yeah. wonderful chap. Wonderful chap. I um, won't hear a word said against him. Yeah. So. Um, Yes, amazing scenes. Then I, I'm I'm jealous as heck again, Peter. Um, missing all of the great fly pasts. We haven't had many fly pasts here recently. Well, you, well, you did that. No, no, you had, didn't. You have two, two. I think you had two Australian Hercules flying flying around the other day with with the one remaining New Zealand Hercules. And I'm oh, as as part of that North and South thing. I want to go and find out where the New Zealand Hercules is that's come over. Ah, because I idea. wonder. I wonder quite where it is. I sus- suspect it's flying ammunition from. 
um, from various places into 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 uh, far far eastern Poland or Poland. right into yep. Ukraine itself. Exactly to unload into the back of a tractor to take over the border. Yeah, that is That's that right. is interesting. Um, I mean, since the Hercules went, we're sending a bunch of people to train Ukrainian soldiers in Britain on how to uh, fire a, apparently a, a very special specialized version of light artillery. And that seems mm -hmm. to be our main role at the moment is to help in various ways. Although the prime minister was at pains to say that our troops would not go inside an inch inside the Ukrainian border. Mm -hmm. And luckily um, for us, all of us really, the Russians haven't had a crack at anyone on, on the other sides of the border. Although this week, it's interesting to see that the Americans are now sending longer range missiles and drones that can fire missiles to Ukraine, yeah. which Russia is not happy about at all. Yeah, well, we'll, we'll talk about that with that with Robert, I guess. Mm, yeah. So, um, and uh, Bernard, I, I, so I was talking about um, house prices in New Zealand with somebody this morning, um, uh, in fact, Patrick Smelly, and he was saying that Jarden is talking about an 18% house price fall in New Zealand. Is that right? Yeah, well, not they're not the only ones. Uh, we've had Westpac say 20%, Capital Economics say 20%. <clears throat> Uh, we've got ANZ at the moment on twelve percent. It's like an auction to see who can see who can have the biggest yeah. number for this, the fall in house prices. And just yesterday, Barford and Thompson came out with the first sales figures for May in Auckland, showing that the median uh, house price in Auckland in May uh, was down nine uh, percent to one point one four one point one two million dollars from the peak in November. And that um, when you look at some of the charts showing what's happening to uh, listings and also what's happening to the time to sell, there's clearly a big downturn going on in the market. But in the last um, week or two, the Reserve Bank has essentially, I think, put a floor under the market by saying that it thinks that prices will be sustainable once they've fallen as much as 20%, which um, uh, reading between the lines, I think, means... They think that's as far as it can go from a wealth effect point of view, because yeah. every every dollar gained in house values for households, about three cents in every dollar is spent in the, as a wealth effect. And the Reserve Bank thinks that for every dollar down, they get around six to seven spent cents in the dollar not spent, i.e. Mm -hmm. the negative wealth effect is twice as large as the positive wealth effect. So in effect, a 20% fall in house prices has the same effect on consumer uh, balance sheets or household balance sheets and spending as a um, as a 40% fall. So um, that's good news if you're a homeowner. It means that A, um, the Reserve Bank will probably intervene to ensure that um, prices don't fall more than 20% from the peak. And when that happens, you'll still be ahead from the beginning of COVID by about 35%. Yeah. And, and can I come back with my carpet bag and just mop up houses I couldn't afford couldn't yeah, afford before? Yeah, yeah. I mean, what you need to do is time it so that you're getting out of the, the UK market just at the that's exactly what I'm. That's exactly what I'm trying to do, <laughs> Bernice. Yeah, that's right. And then come back in and uh, buy yourself. There aren't too many cheap places at the moment, but it's interesting. There are a few apartments coming onto the market. We've had a couple more um, failures of developers in the last couple mm. of weeks. Yeah, is and that where the, is that where the overstretch of people is, is starting? Because I think I think I was telling you that I talked to Brian Gaynor um, a couple of weeks, a few weeks ago, just before he died, in fact, and he was forecasting a very large fall in house prices and also 
a kind of network effect where he felt that, you know, even professional people and certainly tradies were somewhat overstretched. Yeah, waiting I'm, for the next, waiting for the next income, you know, wait, you know, needing a chain of income. Yeah, there's certainly a lot of stress developing in that property development and in uh, construction subcontractor area, because that's where the cash flow dries up first, and you do get some chain effects, and and also <clears throat> some some issues with uh, uh, people who have um, been using high levels of cash flow to as working capital in their businesses. And the moment it dries up, basically they don't have any, any uh, back, backing and they don't have any um, surplus or uh, sort of a rump of support to keep them going. So yes, you're seeing some of the subcontractors and the big um, head contracting construction firms in, in trouble. And uh, it's interesting, there's obviously been this big um, increase in consents for not just uh, apartments, but also townhouses in, mm -hmm. in Auckland. And that's where the biggest stress is going on at the moment in terms of supply hitting the market just as people are pulling back. Uh, so I think you, your, 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 um, your instincts around bailing out, bailing out of London before it gets nuked and then coming down here to buy a, um, a nice um, brand new apartment at a cheap price is, is pretty good, I think. Um, excellent, excellent. Now look, Robert. Robert is sitting there, and buddy Anne ah. French is saying, "You know, could we could we please get on with Robert because it's who he he's who we came oh, for. He's the, hand, it, he's the handsome academic, not you know, not these people talking bollocks." Robert, yes. how are you? I'm fine, thanks, Peter. How are you? Good. I'm um, all right. Good afternoon, right. Peter, uh, to Bernard as well. Yes, oh, wonderful to see you, Robert. And it's um, great that you could come on um, this afternoon evening, uh, in part to talk about the big um, news, really, in our part of the world in this week, I think, it, which is the joint statement made by uh, uh, President Joe Biden and our Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern put out immediately after their meeting. Could you talk us through, for those people who won't have seen it on the um, at the top of the news bulletins in New Zealand, why that joint statement uh, was so important and why it seems to have been missed in all of the you know noise and coverage around the, the, the visit to the White House? Well, I think to put it into context, I think, first of all, the prime minister's had a very successful visit to the United States and she put together a number of agreements, which if, if they are implemented will be, uh, I think, a, sub a significant plus for this country. Um, the actual joint statement and indeed the visit with uh, the president went very well. Of course, the visit was in doubt for some time, but it, it did eventuate and uh, they seem to get on quite famously. But I'm not surprised by that because the White House has been saying extremely nice things about the Prime Minister from the moment mm. Mr. Biden has come in. I was struck. Um, I was uh, fortunate enough to be in an the audience in Wellington when Dr. Kirk Campbell, who is Biden's mm. uh, national security advisor for the Indo-Pacific, and uh, I saw a video link presentation by him from Washington to Wellington, and it was extraordinary. He was just saying that you know, the prime minister was um, a young leader who was tackling some tough issues internationally and had a great global following and that the White House was going to work closely with her. And I think this visit confirmed th that this has happened. Now, the joint statement, of course, was significant from our point of view on a number of areas um, it, because it seemed to get uh, the two sides to agree that the United States should engage more in the Pacific. And I think the other thing was that it did say that uh, the two sides shared very similar values. There's been some 
domestic concerns here that we're now tilting too closely to the United States. And But the Prime Minister was very carefully, to, it, I think it was a carefully crafted joint statement. It, it didn't really tell us anything that we didn't already know about the relationship between these two governments, that they like each other. I think Jacinda Ardern feels far more comfortable with the Biden administration than the Trump one. And that, that wasn't a disaster either. So, uh, and, and, and Biden didn't think that she was Justin Trudeau's uh, wife. <laughs> Presumably, or knew that she wasn't. But uh, Rob, Robert, do you think that um, there are divisions within the government between the Prime Minister and Nanaya Mahuta, the Foreign Minister, on this? Because um, Nanaya Mahuta seems to have been very slow or relatively slow in discussing the whole question of China, um, particularly in the Pacific, whereas no, the Prime I Minister has gone ahead and hardened things up. No, I, I don't think so. Um, I, I think what's happened is that. Well, first of all, Nanai Mahuta has put a tremendous emphasis on developing relations with the Pacific. She's been criticised uh, by some of her predecessors in the job, such as Jerry Brownlee and Winston Peters. But I think towering, the, the towering, answer, towering talents. Yeah. Well, to be fair, Mr. Peters, was, you know, his instincts were right. He did anticipate a major challenge from China in the Pacific, and it has eventuated. And uh, under his leadership at the Foreign Ministry. New Zealand really stepped up its game in the Pacific. Uh, yeah. More than 60% of our overseas aid goes there. So it's clearly a very important region to us. Against that, China has become even more assertive since Mr. Peters has been there. And I think what a lot of people seem to be missing here, if I may say so, I've heard a lot of commentary about how, the, how we're falling into America's uh, arms or we're being, as the Chinese put it, under relentless pressure and the prime minister's buckled under this pressure and, and, and a sort of, you know, passively sign this joint statement with a sort of gun at her back. Well, nothing could be further from the truth. And the, the, what, what really is striking, is, so there's a lot of people saying that, you know, we're now becoming a lackey of the United States. No, China has forced our hand. We've made it quite clear to China for a long time, going back to the Huawei disagreement and before, mm, that yes. we're not going to back down on our fundamental values, which is pluralist democracy and human rights. We're not going to accept a master-servant relationship with China. And China, uh, of course, reacted strongly to the joint statement. And they said, amongst other things, that um, uh, New Zealand, together with the United States, had uh, distorted and smeared China's role in the Pacific. Um, and they said also that it's a shame that New Zealand seemed to be losing its independent diplomatic stance. That won't impress Pacific leaders. They know, they know better than anyone that this government is not as close to the United States as say, Australia is. Mm. And secondly, they know that this government's quite capable of take, pursuing an independent line when it chooses to. So I don't think China did themselves any good by depicting New Zealand as a sudden lackey of the United States. I mean, they're underestimating the sophistication, I think, of some uh, 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 and the judgment of some of the people on the ground. Do you think, though, that the statement does show um, a, a tightening of the relationship? And I noticed there was some interesting phrases around the um, increase in the quote, interoperability of the forces, talking about personnel exchanges, uh, and also taking delivery of new capabilities. Um, are we getting a little bit closer here, at least in recent months, to the United States in a strategic security sense, which may be surprised a few people here, even if it's been talked about in the background? 
I think that China is pushing a convergence between the United States and New Zealand on China's presence in the Pacific. I mean, we have independent reasons, quite independently of the United States, for regarding the Pacific as a core issue. We're not, the, the Prime Minister, from the moment the, Sol the Solomon Islands Agreement with China was signed, mm. she was quite outspoken in her opposition to it. Um, and it, it seems to me that we are not simply resigning ourselves to becoming part of the US global jigsaw or a part of the global effort to contain China. I think New Zealand's position is China can't be contained, it's too big. But what we can do is build up the resilience and capabilities of the Pacific Island states so they have choices. The problem is if we don't you know, start addressing the issues that matter to Pacific Island states, such as climate change, you know, the, 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 it was quite striking to me that Penny Wong uh, has been very active since the new Labour government came in in Australia and um, immediately made the point that quite openly public and publicly acknowledged that the previous government had not been receptive enough to Pacific Island pleas for assistance for a life and death issue for those islands. And, um, and you know, Robert, what's, what, what do you make of the reaction to, the, to Wang Yi, the, the, the Chinese foreign minister's visit? I mean, it seemed a rather mixed, he didn't seem to walk away with some of the agreements that, that, um, that China perhaps had expected. And, well, and these things are usually heavily was, orchestrated. It was ambitious diplomacy. He went mm. in with a multilateral package. And what was striking about the multilateral package was that it linked economic assistance to security assistance. It wasn't compartmentalised whereby partners could say, oh, yes, we have the economic assistance, but no thanks to the security assistance. It was, you know, uh, one of those linked packages which showed that China was basically trying to put together, and still is, I think, a sphere of influence in, in the Pacific Island states. So in a sense, you know, um, how does China react to this? Well, they may be disappointed, but on the other hand, they've made progress. They've signed agreements with Samoa and uh, they have a good working relationship with Fiji. They've got the agreement with Solomons. Look, they're not going to go away. In China, we have to accept the fact that China is the second most powerful country in the world after the United States, and it now believes it's entitled to the diplomatic perks that goes with that status. What we need to do, however, against that, China's got a lot of things um, which, which do not appeal. It's got a deeply unattractive political system. In fact, quite a few, there was quite a few mutterings, from what I can gather, um, amongst the journalists about the fact that uh, the Chinese Foreign Minister Wang Yi wouldn't take questions. There was a great deal of secrecy, and it, it was imposed by China on their hosts. So yeah, that's so another thing you see. In a sense, China has some real problems in selling its um, political system to other people. So we shouldn't, you know, it's a real challenge. It's not going to go away, but I don't think it's insurmountable from the point of view of New Zealand the United States and Australia. Do we have it's to be a little bit? Sorry, Ben. It's, it's, just, it's interesting, Robert, with the with the um, uh, upcoming Chinese Communist Party um, Congress as well, where all of these things are going to come together and we're going to look to see whether she has any threat at all against him or whether he's just going to continue to cement his own influence. I um, mean, that's, that's quite a pivotal thing, because I remember the, you know, the, the, the second to last one, where he, you know, there was an, an expectation that China might actually open up 
under under Xi Jinping, Xi Jinping, mm. um, and become less authoritarian. And the truth has tur it turned out to be quite the reverse. Uh, yes, it has. It's become more China-centric and more assertive. But there are definitely people in the Central Committee who disagree with Xi Jinping's policies. And that, um, and that you, you notice, even in the academic world, that you know top scholars from China are quite outspoken sometimes in their criticism of the government once they're outside the country. They obviously have dispensation to speak. That is, they have supporters in high places. Um, and I think the conflict in the Ukraine has caused real problems in the Chinese leadership. Uh, it's very interesting that in the last 24 hours, the Chinese leadership snapped at Mr. Putin and uh, when uh, basically said that they should stop asking them for military assistance, <laughs> which was <laughs> which is a double insult, really, saying no when he needs it and he's getting, he's getting to the point where he really does need it. And secondly, advertising the rest of the world. Uh, it wasn't a private snub, it was a public snub. And yeah, which so, is extremely interesting. I mean, we've, we've talked a little bit about this before, but, you know, China yeah. really is the dog that hasn't barked in the, in the Ukraine crisis. It is. And I, and I think that shows some extraordinarily effective diplomacy from the United States, but it also shows a remarkable sense of realism from, from the Chinese. Yes, and as we said before, the Chinese have quite a significant stake in the Ukraine. They were quite close to the Ukraine, and I think they are appalled at the way Russia is just smashing up the eastern part of Ukraine now pulverizing the Donbass. But coming back to the China challenge in the Pacific, uh, you know, it's interesting um, about this whole uh, New Zealand response, because I always felt going back to about 2018, that the government did mean business about resisting Chinese influence in the Pacific. The crucial thing is, would China push themselves to a point where New Zealand felt it had to push back. And I think we've reached that point now. So the ball is in China's court. If they continue to push, then they will cement um, the relationship between Australia, the United States and New Zealand with regard to the Pacific Island states. I think one of the things I took that I thought was re really big win for New Zealand in that joint statement was that New United States accepts that the way forward is not necessary to try and contain China in the Pacific Island states, but to address the needs that the Pacific Island states have identified, and in particular, to work through the Pacific Islands Forum. And you know, the Chinese tried to preempt the Pacific mm. Island Forum by getting their package accepted before the Pacific Islands Forum could meet. As you know, since 2000, the Pacific Island states have a code of conduct and um, with regard to security, that any security issue should be discussed by all specific island states, uh, rather than one doing its own thing and signing an agreement with an outside party. And that's what's happened with the Solomons. And I think um, there's going to be a lively discussion in July when uh, this whole question of security in the region is raised. Just one final question. Uh, Robert, around trade, there's a few exporters to China getting a little bit nervous at the strength of the response from yeah. uh, Chinese officials, in particular, Mr. Wolf Warrior, um, on yeah. uh, Tuesday night. Uh, is there a risk of we overplay our hand and the Chinese start hitting us with um, tariffs or uh, bans in the way that they hit the Australians with uh, lobster, barley, sugar, coal um, uh, restrictions? 
That's a difficult one, isn't it? But my own sense is they won't. And the reason I say that, um, and I'll probably be wrong, but the reason I believe that at the moment is that I do not, I think, first of all, the Chinese make a very real distinction between Australia and New Zealand, despite their rhetoric about us now convert, you know, falling into the arms of the United States or, or being bludgeoned into uh, agreeing with the United States. Despite that, that's rhetoric, and, and the Chinese know it. Um, but I think they know that uh, New Zealand has pursued an independent foreign policy, a reasonably independent foreign policy. And, and I think the other thing they know is they can't afford to fall out with too many partners. This is a country which is totally dependent on the world capitalist system. It cannot alienate too many Western partners or would-be partners. Of course, they could easily put mothballs or, 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 or complicate trade between New Zealand and China. But it struck me as interesting that with the Scott Morrison government gone, the Chinese quickly welcomed the new government in Australia and quickly Ooh. said things like, oh, let's bygones be bygones. So <laughs> I, I don't think I don't think it's going to happen. I think we could be in for more stiff warnings. But um, from China's point of view, um, Russia continues to cause them problems in the Western world because many Western countries have noted China's ambiguity and told China basically they don't like it. China's <laughs> deeply embarrassed by what's happening. And that's the difference in a way between China and Russia and that Russia is not embedded in the and intertwined mm. in the global economy in the way that China is and actually frankly didn't have as at much as much at stake. And the risk of those secondary sanctions certainly seems to have uh, uh, um, made the made China think more than more than once about what it does next. Uh, Professor what, Robert Patman, thank you. No, wait, wait, wait a minute, wait a minute, what oh, are sure, we sure. going to do about, we're going to ask about Ukraine though, don't we? Oh, okay. Go for it. Now, Robert, I posited, a, I, and I don't I'm not certain about this myself, although I just want to say Lance Wiggs is saying that, that our conversation makes him really worry in case the government listens to us. And, I, and as we know, the government, <laughs> the New Zealand government hangs on our every word, just waiting, you know, just, they're, they're, they're looking for policy guidance to, from Bernard and to, me. To be fair to me and to you and to, and to Robert, this podcast will go into the Prime Minister's email account tomorrow morning. I'm not kidding. Yeah. And everyone in the cabinet and parliament gets it, as well as yeah. a whole bunch of people. So um, Christ, I'm gonna have to along with myself up. Along with Lance Wiggs's um, email account, which is which is great. Sorry. Yeah, no, but no, Robert, I I, I have a uh, sense, and it's not much more than that, but given given the delays that Hungary inserted in, in getting some of the restrictions on Russian oil this week, and given what we're seeing about the level of inflation the really critical economic problems, things like bread in uh, Egypt, you know, the problems in, in Sri Lanka. Mm. I, I am not absolutely convinced that the coalition that is supporting Ukraine at the moment is going to be that ro robust. That I, I feel as though there's a really strong, uh, short, or a short, a short attention span on all of these kinds of uh, big stories at the moment. That you know, three months, hundred days is a bloody long time in people's attention span. Uh, and and of course Putin can can wait us out. He's still getting something like you know eighty billion dollars a day from from Europe um, on the on oil. Yeah, but he's also under enormous pressure. He spent a lot of money, and he's only basically got about twenty percent of the Ukraine under his control. And although there's been a lot of foot dragging, Washington is slowly making more and more heavy weapons available to Ukraine. There's also a lot of sabotage going on 
in Russia, which is causing enormous concern. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, you may be right. Maybe the West will blink first. I, I'm, I'm not convinced about that. I think, actually, there may be some dissent. I, I haven't been impressed personally by, uh, you know, the French and the German leadership ringing up Mr. Putin and telling him to withdraw. Well, first of all, he's not going to withdraw at their insistence. And secondly, I think it conveys the wrong message. I, I think the, the time for an off-ramp uh, for Mr. Putin is gone. And um, I, I think basically um, the Ukrainians need to be supported in their endeavour to eject an evading force from their country. And we're not trying to be unreasonable here. I mean, we have to think about the alternatives. When France and Germany say, can't we have some sort of peace settlement or hint at it? That, well, let's be quite clear. What does that mean? That means that a country which has um, violated the territorial ter integrity of another country is going to be allowed to hang on to part of that territory as any settlement. I, I can't see that would be stabilising <clears throat> internationally. It, it is interesting from a military point of view how we've gone back to the to the to the holding on to to, to um, Donetsk and Luhansk. We're, we're kind of where we were on February the twenty second or February the twenty third, ahead of the twenty four invasion. In that, in that we've now got again got the sliver on the on the eastern side, or quite a big sliver. We now have a land bridge, of course, because of the Mariupol um, disaster. We have a land bridge to Crimea. So, in fact, if if people were um, bored enough to go back and listen to some of our earlier podcasts as, as this was warming up, that idea of that that sort of uh, eastern sliver hmm. um, being grabbed and being the the primary Russian objective or the most realistic Russian objective has turned out to be kind of true at the moment, but also yeah. at absolutely hmm. astounding military cost. Yes, yes, and I'm not convinced. I've said it before, but I still remain unconvinced that Putin can fight a long war here. Yes, he is getting 80 billion a day, but the Europeans kicking and screaming are cutting back on their gas imports, and the economy generally is feeling the impact of sanctions. And you know, the Russian economy wasn't particularly strong to start with, and I think there are some really interesting signs, continuing signs, of a lot of a turmoil in Russia at the moment, mm. and. Um, it seems to me the performance of the Russian army, if nothing else, um, has been disappointing. I mean, you know, there was all this hype about how Russia had this the best mobile army in the world. It couldn't even feed its own troops in the first week of the campaign. I, I think it is a grim struggle. And Putin's now in a position where he can't really retreat and he can't really mobilize either. Yeah, uh, I was so, struck, Robert, that the Tom Tugendhat, the head of the Foreign Affairs Committee in, in, in Parliament here, was asked um, how he thought uh, Vladimir Putin would leave the leave the Kremlin, and his answer was in a box. Well, <laughs> that's yeah, one way. There's also speculation about his health, of course. So we, yeah, yeah, we don't yeah. really know the inside story there. Okay, uh, Robert, thank you very much for coming in. It's thank been you. Lovely, lovely to have you, and I'd like to welcome into the discussion Josie Pagani who's an old um, uh, mate of mine, if you like, um, shared various panels with her. Uh, Josie is a former Labour candidate uh, from a couple of elections ago and now works in international aid in Wellington, very closely watches the political scene and also the um, international geopolitical scene. Josie, welcome in. Unmute, Josie. 
Can what a good idea. Here we go. Hello, yeah, so, uh, <laughs> Kia ora. Well, great to see you. Thank you very much for coming in. I really appreciate your, um, your doing it. it oh, I'm sorry. And I'm notice. on my floaty mobile, but, you know, it makes it look live and urgent. Like oh, yeah. Of, yeah, and you're, I can see you're on the Cook Strait. It's, it's moving. I can see you're on the Cook Strait ferry. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> We've got Peter Bale uh, here um, dialed in from uh, London, Josie, and we in particular uh, enjoyed your column today in the Dominion Post, which I've put into the um, comment stream for our our um, attendees to uh, to have a look at, which essentially sort of pushes back a bit at some of the direction of travel that uh, New Zealand collectively seems to have taken in the last week or two. What was your feeling about that joint statement uh, made um, after the meeting between the Prime Minister and the US President? Well, I think what was interesting about it was that the um, press release from the Beehive on it didn't mention China once, um, but of course the joint statement mentions China a lot. And, and so that tells me that we did get, you know, slightly pushed into a position where we were probably being more provocative than we wanted to be diplomatically. Um, now, you know, I'm not saying that that's necessarily a bad thing. I'm just saying that we're at a really fragile, delicate um, position now, I think, in New Zealand foreign affairs, where we're trying not to pick sides in in a in a global superpower uh, struggle, um, and it's really important that we don't. Not just for a sort of Kissinger type real politic reason, but actually for a moral reason, I think. And something that um, Robert just mentioned back then, you know, New Zealand has a unique position, a unique relationship with China. Uh, we certainly align with the US with US values. We align with democratic liberal values about freedom and 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 the right for country borders to be respected. But we also have a very unique relationship with China. And so it's different to Australia. And, you know, we we can we can have some influence there, I think, morally, um, in terms of human rights, in terms of, uh, you know, what's going on in Hong Kong. Um, you know, it, we don't have to take the same position that the US does or Australia does. So I think we're being pushed a bit into a situation that we're not quite comfortable with. Couldn't, couldn't you argue, though, that China today is quite a different China to the one that we signed up to, if you like, when we signed the Free Trade Agreement in 2008? Xi Jinping is clearly more authoritarian, yeah. uh, more expansive with his foreign policy. And the events, uh, particularly in Xinjiang province, but in Hong Kong uh, and in the South China Sea, really changed the flavour of um, that that China that we thought we'd signed up to. And that and because yeah. of that change, don't we have to change as well? Yes, I, yes, I think we do, Bernard. And I think the way in which we change is we will define the way in which we change that relationship. And I think it comes to our um, you know, moral leadership in, in, in the world, on the world stage, if you like. And I, I would like to see our Prime Minister using some of her star power to actually take a bit of a lead on that. Because, you know, I'm, I'm not saying that we kind of brush over that in a, in a, in a sort of cynical way. It, it's actually about looking at what, where we can influence. And, and I think after Ukraine, particularly, um, that there's a, a kind of real demand for a sort of moral world order, a change to the multilateral system. So I think where New Zealand can come in is rather than just shouting at China or, or shouting at the Pacific for saying that China's got a part of, wants, wants China to be part of their future, what we can do is say, right, what did we do in Rwanda? You know, we stood up for a multilateral system that, 
that will not allow borders to be crossed, that will have consequences, even for our trading partners, of, of um, and, um, you know, human rights abuses or, you know, abuses around sovereignty and territorial uh, uh, sovereignty. So, so I think that there's things we can do at the global stage. For example, you know, if Liechtenstein can do it, my God, they've got a population of 40,000 people. Um, you know, they're tiny. If they can say to the UN, actually, the veto at the Security Council is not fit for the future. We want it gone. We want, we want another mechanism that's going to work to push back on that. So New Zealand can do that. And that was the... Josie, that sounds like a very Helen Clarkish view. <laughs> I'll take that as a compliment, Peter. Um. <laughs> well, I, th I think it, I think it is in a sense. I mean, it, it, you know, I, I know people. We've talked about this before. I know people who think that Helen Clark is part of our sort of um, secret cabal of people trying to create a world government. But one of the things that Robert has talked about in the past is there's the potential for Jacinda Ardern, New Zealand as, as a as a whole, but particularly Jacinda Ardern, to lead a kind of coalition of smaller countries. Uh, without some of the some of the dogs in the fight that um, that the US and China have, and and to to reassert some of these de democratic that democratic kind of core values, so I think of, of the post World War Two order, exactly. And I think what 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 we've inherited, as we know, I mean. <laughs> Um, you know, gosh, it's, I'm not saying anything anyone hasn't said before. We've got a multilateral system that is designed to deal with the post-war, Cold War environment with, you know, the veto of the five big powers. Well, you know, since then, since the 1940s, the world has changed so much. And I think, you know, elevating the role of the General Assembly so that it can push back on a Security Council veto is one thing we can do. But, but you're right, Peter, if you look at the Pacific and you look at the leadership of someone like Prime Minister Fiamme in Samoa, um, you know, she's pushed back on China. She signed a deal where she wants one, and uh, whether it's to do with infrastructure or whatever, but she's pushed back on these big partnership deals and said, no, nope, we'll do it as a region. So you're right. There's a chance for New Zealand to do that globally and go small countries, whether in the Pacific or, or, or globally, you know, can come together and together we're stronger. We can actually kind of, I don't know, design or, or um, outline changes to the multilateral system, whether it's the UN or whether it's the World Bank or whether it's, uh, uh, you know, looking at the role of the EU and so on. Yeah, we can lead that. I'm not hopeful that's going to happen, though. And, and one of the reasons I think, you know, I look at how long we took in New Zealand to come up with something, you know, that was substantive to support Ukraine. It took us a bit yeah. too long. <laughs> so I think we need a bit more courage in that. Yeah, I just, Robert, what, may, may I ask what Robert thinks on this? Because I... I, I, I I, I hear what you're saying, Josie, and it's, and it's the sort of thing one says when you just had a meeting with the with the US uh, president that appeared to go go well. Um, uh, and I, I noticed in, in your in your piece that that stuff had put in a, a picture from Luke Malpass where um, you know Jacinda is turning on her forty thousand volt smile. But Robert, is is it realistic for New Zealand to actually carry out some of that role, or particularly Jacinda perhaps to ca carry out that some of the, that role? I think so. I think I agree with Josie. I think. We're at a crucial moment in what's been a prolonged international transition since the end of the uh, end of the Cold War. And there's two things we should keep in mind. Firstly, there is a void in global leadership. The reason there's a void in global leadership is because superpowers are stronger, stronger than ever, but they're confronted by problems which they cannot solve unilaterally. The many of the problems we face now, whether they be climate change, COVID-19, transnational terrorism, 
defy they, they do not respect borders they, and they defy international uh, they defy great power resolution and that has created a gap internationally because what's happened at the moment and i know josie was alluding to this but in the security council the permanent five use their veto to block things they don't like but they can't put in a solution of their own mm-hmm. so we're falling into a halfway house and um, the crucial challenge we face is whether countries like New Zealand, in combination with other like-minded small and middle powers, is going to fill that vacuum. Because many of the, many of the problems we face can only, by, by definition, be solved on an international basis. Now, this isn't wishy-washy. This isn't back, back to the 50s or the 60s or anything like this. This is in the 21st century. We have to be real about problems that do not respect borders. And the only way out of this is for countries out, uh, to, to engage in self-interested international cooperation. Could I um, Kicking jump... and screaming, we're going to move in that direction. Can Jesus, I jump in? Bernard, are you trying to run your own podcast? Ah, uh, yeah. <laughs> just, to, just to jump in with a um, devil's advocate position here, um, to Josie, uh, is it really possible in this new world where the Americans seem to have get, given up on the multilateral thing, they haven't, they're not offering us uh, any extra trade access in this Indo-Pacific economic framework. They seem mostly interested in dictating a services um, trade framework, which is in line with their tech companies. Um, the, the Chinese are trying to build their own version of uh, a multilateral deal. Uh, it seems to me in this world where you've now got a pretty clear strategic competition between America on the one side and China on the other, aren't we really just going to have to grin and bear it and pick one side at some point or another? And we might as well just, and we know which side it's going to be if we're going to be um, halfway close to what we think uh, our values and our you know democratic um, history are. Why don't we just, you know, grin and bear it and get on with the business of disconnecting from China and joining up with the Americans. Yeah, which is why I quoted the not quite appropriate, but somewhat appropriate um, Thucydides trap <laughs> when, uh, you know, the, the island of Melos did exactly that uh, and between the superpower struggle between Ath- ancient Athens and Sparta and, and, you know, basically got destroyed. So the problem with that is that you don't know, first of all, if you're picking the right side. Now, again, you're absolutely right. Our values, our our, uh, commitment to liberal democracy, we align with America. But the point is, if you look at China and the Pacific, for example, whether we like it or not, the Pacific have decided that China's part of the future of the region. Now, you know, I, I think there's a difference, and Robert alluded to this too, there's a difference between, you know, Putin and Russia and China in terms of their uh, um, activities, say, in the Pacific region. So I think, you know, there are ways in which we can work with China in the Pacific. But also, I think it's really important that we that we use the, the, the moral authority that we do have um, wherever possible to go, actually, um, there have to be consequences in, in, a, in a global de- democratic system of trade or um, uh, you know, the benefits of being part of our club mean that you have to abide by certain human rights standards. And I, and I don't think we've ever used that. We've never used that card. And I think if we come together, we can use it. Now, there might be consequences for us, Bernard. I know, you, yeah, that, that you're right. But I think that our relationship with China is different to other countries. I think we can push back on, on that. We can be far more muscular on that stuff without compromising our, our, 
our values. But isn't yeah, and, what, she, and what, isn't, we'll, we'll never have a time when when Jacinda Ardern has more authority to do that as well. I mean, she has. And, she, and also, she has for the moment, a great deal of sort of moral, political, international authority. I mean, since the government listens to this and, and hangs on our every word, Bernard, you know, yeah. I, I think it's time she may, maybe maybe did take a visit to Zelensky and then on to then on to Beijing. Also, just one other thing I'd add to that, Peter, is that yes, Jacinda has that authority to do that, and I and I really <laughs> wish that she'd use it. But also, post COVID, and we've seen this in many sort of areas that that there is a kind of urgency post-COVID where there's permission to accelerate changes that we've been talking about for you know, decades. So I think we're in a different environment now. And, and rather than being cynical about our ability to actually say, right, you want to be, you want to join the CPTPP, you want to join it, China, you've got to, you've actually got to look at some of your, uh, you've, you've got to look at what you're doing in Hong Kong, you've got to look at what you're doing yeah. uh, with, with your Uyghur, with Uyghur communities. So, you know, I think you, we're in a, you won't find any cynicism on this podcast. Oh. No, but I just think <laughs> that, that the ability to accelerate change um, has increased massively post-COVID. I just wonder, though, um, and maybe I'm I'm being a bit uh, overly dramatic here, but there was a period, you know, in the early to mid '30s, where large chunks of Europe and the rest of the world simply thought that Germany under Hitler would uh, fade out, that um, they would stick within their borders and that they could be appeased back into their box. Uh, I wonder whether Xi Jinping, who has shown himself to be utterly ruthless, particularly with um, minorities in Xinjiang, is has the character, which means there is no negotiating or trying to morally uh, swayed him, that you just have to uh, make him talk to the hand and madly go around buying drones and rockets and just get ready for the uh, confrontation that eventually is going to come. Yeah. So, so the question that the question in that is, what is the hand? And that's what I'm saying. I'm actually arguing for a really muscular approach to China on this, which is different to say to the saber rattling stuff. So, what China really, really want to do right now is join the TPP. I, I call it the TPP because it is the TPP. <laughs> it's minor changes. Um, so, I think there's there's a hand right there. Uh, we say, yeah, we actually we want you. We trade with you already. We want you in in the TPP. Um, but you're going to have you're, there's there's a price for joining a club which abides by human rights, abides by the sovereignty, the, the, the territorial sovereignty of countries, including Taiwan. I mean, that's what I think COVID has given us permission to do. Is rather than talk around things diplomatically, you know, people are people are sick of the the um, paralysis at multilateral organisations, the veto at Security Council, the diplomatic speak around hors d'oeuvres and the canapes. You know, they want they want countries like New Zealand to go. We really want you to come into this club, China. Uh, but there's a price to pay, and the price to pay is your behaviour has to reach a certain minimum standard. But what happens when Joe Biden says, hang on a minute, um, we don't want China in the TPP. Sure, we don't want to join it, but we're not going to let you let China China join. Um, you're in our camp. You can't be inviting yeah. them into the uh, halfway house. Um, well, we can actually. <laughs> That's the thing. You know, if, if, if all 11 countries in the TPP agree and China agrees to the certain, uh, uh, you know, uh, minimum standard of behaviour in its own country, 
um, then actually we can let China in. And until America offers us something other than uh, what I called a vegan sausage in the ridiculous Indo-Pacific framework, which is really just permission to have conversations that we're already having, um, you know, offer us, offer us something tangible like market access or, um, you know, you, you really don't have a, a, um, a right to tell us who we can and can't bring yeah, in. We, I, I've talked about this before with, with, with Robert as well, and I, and I do feel sometimes naive about this. And when I've um, talked to people like Rodney Jones about it, it sounds like I am being naive, but engagement with China has to be the way to go. Yes, I, I totally agree, Peter. And that, again, I'm not saying that in terms of a sort of, you know, Kissinger type, you've just got to deal with the bad guys. It, it's actually that I think we've got an opportunity, um, you know, to, to be quite muscular in terms of our values and, and our minimum standards with China. But at the same time, we already have a relationship with them. My great uncle is Rui Ali, who, you know, first went to China uh, before the Second World War and is, a, is, is seen as a hero in, in, in China. Mm. Um, you know, it, and invented the phrase gung ho. Gung ho, exactly. So, you know, we, we have a different sort of relationship with China than Australia or the US. And I think we can use it and we can use it in a way that, that, that matches and, and lives up to our values on the international stage. Robert, what's Bernard, your... I've been, I'm, tempted to, I'm tempted to ask you how, how, how far the um, price of that halfway house is going to fall. Yeah, yeah, very good. <laughs> Which was a quite a stretched segue. I'm sorry. Oh yeah, no, yeah, no. I just wanted to ask uh, Robert one one more question, not about house prices, but um, Absolutely. Uh, do, do, do you think? And just just to finish up on this, because I'm fascinated with this idea that you know we could play more of a role or be more muscular, uh, and also in particular push back at the Americans. Do you think that? Um, the Americans have um, been a bit cheap with us and not offering us market access and, and maybe overplayed their own um, moral high grounds. You know, this is a place where they've got school shootings, mm. institutional racism, uh, gerrymandered democracy. You know, really, can the Americans be quite so confident we're always going to jump with their ship? Well, I, I was very pleased in response to your question. I was very pleased that the prime minister kept reminding the Americans that they should join uh, the TPP or the Comprehensive and Progressive Trans-Pacific Partnership, uh, you know, because they were there, uh, they were involved in it. The Obama administration was deeply involved in its creation. But then, of course, Mr. Trump um, uh, unsigned the agreement. So, uh, you know, in a sense, I, and I agree with the points you're making, Bernard, the United States standing, and I don't think America is always aware of this because what I got from America when the Biden administration came into office, said, America's back, as if we could forget <laughs> everything that happened before. Well, it's not going to work that way. America's reputation as a model democracy has got declined steeply, not least amongst other democracies. And you asked just now a question, which is a good one, about should we fear a situation where we have to pick a, pick a side? No. Why? because the rest of the world are not going to be dictated to by China or the United States. The rest of the world knows both of those great powers cannot solve the world's problems. They'd like to run the world, but they cannot do it. If they could, they would. So that is the reality we face in the 21st century. And I think um, there is room for small countries and middle powers acting together. We had the precedent of the Christchurch Court, where 
New Zealand got together with France because at that time the Trump administration wouldn't help and passed the Christchurch call. 50 countries signed up to this attempt to curb online extremism. So I do think we're at a very interesting juncture in history. And we may be witnessing in the 21st century the rise of the small and middle powers to a more active international role. We can't just simply depend on great powers to defend our interests it, because that was always based on the assumption they could solve the problems that faced us all. But that's over. That's so that's true, Robert. And actually, just to add to that, I think one of the things about, you know, bringing either China or the US into the TPP um, you know, there are there are enforceable mechanisms in that trade deal. And I think this is a new era of, you know, a moral focus on the way we trade. So, you know, there are enforceable um, clauses on environmental damage, on labour rights, um, uh, on, you know, union access, on, uh, on all sorts of things. Imagine if we could get China into that deal and abiding by 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 these regulations, by these by these requirements. I mean, that in itself is a, is a global public good if we could do that. Mm. Fantastic. Look, this, is, hey. this is fabulously ambitious. I mean, this is this is so much better than that panel thing on RNZ. We've actually got you know, <laughs> sensible, sensible people who've possibly yeah. even read a book once or twice. That's right. No, it's really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you very much to uh, Robert Patman and to Josie Pagani. And Peter, to finish up today, um, we have a skateboarding dog in the name of Dominic Cummings and his special friend, Boris Johnson. Tell us about this. Well, Bernard, I just wanted to, so there's a re remarkable former Guardian um, columnist, Suzanne Moore, um, and she did an did a interview, which, which uh, have, you, have you got the link there, the Substack link? I'll put it up. Did an interview, very in interesting interview on her Substack with Dominic Cummings, who's um, uh, Boris Johnson's former, former advisor here. I'll just pop it into the chat. And um, it's just, it was, it's, it's enormous and just hugely illuminating on what a total dickhead Boris Johnson really is. <laughs> That's a technical so in the, this, there's, a, there's a couple of lines in here that I just, I just want to read out to you that, um, you know, so if you, if you recall in the middle of COVID, so um, uh, but, uh, Dominic is, is discussing, just, just discussing what they're doing in the middle of COVID. They, he was trying to get divorced. Boris was trying to get divorced from his, his wife, Marina. Um, Carrie was doing, as, as uh, Dominic calls it, the insane renovation of the flat with Lulu running up huge bills. Lulu was the interior designer who was weirdly at the, um, at, the, um, uh, um, at, the, at the Downing Street party. And this is, this is a quote from Dominic Cummings. He jumped into conversations with me in January where he'd say, you've got to help me get money to pay for this stuff. She's upstairs. She spent $100,000, all this gold wallpaper and stuff, and I'm fucked with my divorce. I can't pay for it. So I say, well, go to Coots, which is the Queen's Bank. Get one of your rich friends to take out a loan. No, fuck that. I want to get donations and to, and to do it. But obviously it's bad PR, so I have to keep it quiet, he said. I, he said. I said, that's illegal. What the fuck are you talking about, you idiots? The Prime Minister can't get secret donations. And then <laughs> it goes on about the Prime Minister's dog, and Boris says... This fucking time store about Dylan, the dog is shitting, over all the, uh, shitting all over the flat. I want an inquiry. I want to know who briefed it. Carrie thinks it's you. So this whole saga, and, and I disagree, Julian, with your, um, just that, I mean, the idea that I'm disrespectful or arrogant, please. But, um, you know, that you've just got, uh, uh, you know, inside story on the utter chaos in Downing Street, and it's not going away. 
No, that's the sort of frightening and sad thing is that right at the heart of um, this awful situation in Europe, you've got some fairly um, unsuitable characters with, with their uh, fingers on buttons and arms on levers. And uh, we have to hope that we somehow get out of it without something uh, truly horrible happening. Peter Bale, thank you so much for um, dialing in. Uh, thank you, Josie. Thank you, Robert. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you, Bernard. Wonderful to have you all. That was a really cracking discussion. Thank you all to everyone who who signed up, and we shall we shall um, ensure it goes out as a podcast tomorrow morning. Kakita, I know. And, and welcome, have... welcome to Jacinda. And would she please help us with the Helen Clark Global Government? Yes, will peace, please, Jacinda. <laughs> thank you very much. <laughs> thank you. Bye bye. Kakita, bye bye. Kakita, no. Bye bye. Yeah.